Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Should I talk? I think you should start. Is this thing on? Exactly. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. This week's guest host, once again, is Joanna Hemingway. Hello, everybody. Hello, Johanna. Hello. You like the Johanna, right? Doesn't no. that, it makes you crazy. I know it does. Um, so. My grandmother was allowed to use the H. Okay. But nobody else but the uh, my uh, office manager. Because we have a Joanna and a Joanne. Okay. In the same office. So, Johanna. Okay. Johanna. I won't do that. Yes. It's bad. I, I don't mind it, but if you call me Joe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punch you right in the face. And just a reminder, Scott will be back next week. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Thanks once again to Krista from 36 Times for reading our disclaimer. You can hear her and Lily on the 36 Times podcast at 36times.podbean.com. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. I'm not ordinary. Okay. I'm extra ordinary. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Om nom nom nom. Mm. This is episode 74. Yay, 74. <laughs> Tonight we're off to a town about a half hour drive east of downtown Toronto called Pickering. It's in the Durham region. Mm -hmm. Julianne Stanton was 14 years old when she was last seen wearing jeans and a bomber jacket at approximately 2 p.m. on Monday, April 16, 1990. She was getting into a gray Chevy Monte Carlo on Lynn Heights Drive at the corner of Maury Crescent in Pickering. Yep. Her folks were extremely worried when she did not come home that night. Yeah. I yeah, I can imagine how scared any parent would be when your kid doesn't come home. Pickering is up the Don Valley Parkway and then onto the 401. Mm -hmm. East just a little bit. It was settled by the British in the 1700s after being home to the indigenous peoples known as the Wyandot or Hurons, as the European settlers called them. Hmm. Okay, I didn't know that. It is home to just over 91,000 people, as well as the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station. It's an eight-reactor facility with a capacity of 4,120 megawatts, and the largest employer in the city. Although the plant is scheduled to begin the process of decommissioning in 2024, I don't know what's going to happen to Pickering when the, the plant goes away. I think it's big enough that it'll survive, but here's a side story. Like, yes, I grew up in Pickering. Okay. And uh, I remember going on a field trip from our school to the power plant. Okay. And we got to walk around the big pool, like the where they keep all of the... Uh, used up materials that yep. are like way 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 down there yep, and the waste yep. the waste and we got we got a tour of the nuclear power plant that's really cool yeah i remember being inside of it and they had like game like the science world so that's why you have the extra arm yeah that's back. why i glow i have a glow <laughs> you have a certain glow <laughs> and you could go down to the beach and you could actually see it from the beach oh that's cool yeah hmm i hadn't even thought of that in, in ages well there you go yeah power plant Many of the residents of Pickering work at jobs in Toronto mm -hmm. and commute either by GO train or they brave that 401 every single day. Yeah, it's better to take the GO train. Love the GO train. People who are from Pickering are Ernie Coombs. 
Yes. CBC's Mr. Dress Up made he, his home there. He used to live just down the street from my high school. Really? Yeah, he used to live just down the street. My Did mother you... loved him. Apparently, we met him when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Yep. Loved Mr. Dress Up. I loved Mr. Dress Up, too. Also, NHL bad boy and forward with the New York Rangers, Sean Avery, grew up in Pickering. Sean Avery. He's the guy who waved his hand in front of Martin Brodeur's face, trying to get the goalie off his game. Mm, not the biggest hockey follower yeah. in the world. Well, Sean Avery is a douche canoe. Okay. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you spent a lot of your childhood in Pickering? Yeah. Uh, we moved there when I was nine, and then I ran away from Pickering back to Toronto when I was uh, 18 or 19. Oh, okay. Yeah, as fast as I could get out of that little city. Do you still have friends who live there? Uh, as far as I know, some people do still live there or mm. in the area. Lots yep. of, yeah, lots of people still in Ontario. What are some of your most outstanding memories of Pickering other than what we're going to talk about tonight? Um, outstanding. I don't think there was anything really outstanding about Pickering. It was just a, a a small town city that just got progressively bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember the mall getting bigger, and that was a big thing. Okay. We always walked to the mall. I uh, what was it called? Sheridan Town Center, I town think? Town Center, yeah. Sheridan Town Center. We were always at the mall. I remember the days when you could actually smoke walking. I never smoked. That's a lie. Um, I <laughs> Your mother's probably not listening. She's not listening. Mother, don't kill me. Um, yeah, you could smoke walking around in the mall. Yeah. You just put it out before mall. you go in a store. The mall was like that in my hometown, too. Yeah. So that's what kids did for fun? Went to the mall? And Went to the mall. Was there an arcade or anything like there that? There was an arcade in the food court. Yeah, I remember being in there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was a little kid, we used to go swimming a lot at the rec center because it was just, uh, we used to walk up the street and go through the hydro field. And uh, we used to, the cicadas, so loud in that hydro field. And we'd always walk through there to get to the, the rec center and go swimming for hours every single day. So, this girl who went missing, Julie Stanton, was your age, right? Yeah, she was my age. She went to the same high school as I did, same and, grade. But you didn't really know her? No. i thinking a lot about um, those times now. I have come across a couple of vague memories of seeing her, mm -hmm. but uh, I remember she was way cooler than I was. Yeah. And she was... You mentioned she wore like a mod jacket. She was a mod. Yeah, I remember like that mod jacket and bomber jackets. And I was really, really, really scared of everybody. Okay. <laughs> and kept to myself. So I remember seeing her, but I would never go up and talk to somebody who had more confidence than I did. There you go. Yeah. And she was known as a more confident person. Yeah, the friends that I've talked to have said that she was a very nice, mm. very nice person. So let's get into this story about what happened. Sure. As many volunteers went to work looking for Julie Stanton around Pickering and other places close by, the police were already homing in on one man. Within 24 hours, the police had a strong suspect in Julie's disappearance, but publicly called him a person of interest. Mm -hmm. A male college student in the neighborhood was the one who'd seen Julie getting into the gray Monte Carlo the afternoon she disappeared. The young man didn't get a license plate, nor did he get a really good look at the driver. All he saw was a scruffy-looking middle-aged man with shaggy hair. Mm -hmm. The man that police were looking at was named Peter John Stark. Mm -hmm. His daughter, Kim, was Julianne Stanton's best friend and also went to the Dunbarton High School. Yeah. Quickly, it was discovered that Stark, who closely fit the general description of the man Julie was seen with, also drove a gray Monte Carlo. He drove the gray Monte Carlo, yes. Stark also had a dark past. Yeah. There had been a questionable interaction between Peter John Stark and Julianne Stanton the summer of 1989. The 46-year-old Stark invited Julie to meet him alone on his boat at a local marina. He knew Julie and his daughter Kim were pals and was claiming he wanted to meet with Julie to talk about Kim. He said he was worried about her. Yeah. Being only 13 and trusting at the time, Julie Stanton went to meet Stark alone. Peter Stark offered Julie an alcoholic cooler, which Julie took. Five hours later, Julie landed on the steps of a friend's house. Oh, gosh. She was incoherent, the top button of her pants was undone, and her clothing was disheveled. She was out of it, and she'd even urinated in her pants. Oh, that poor girl. 
She said she had no recollection of what happened after drinking the blue-colored liquid that Peter Stark had given her. Stark himself denied anything inappropriate other than that of providing alcohol to a minor had occurred. He claimed he'd served Julie just one drink and apparently she'd had some reaction to it. Yeah. After that, Stark said he put Julie in a cab and sent her home. It appeared to others that Julie had been drugged, but by the time the police were involved, it was too late to determine whether she had been or not. Yeah. Stark told police that he'd been prescribed halcyon in pill form by a doctor to help with his heart. Okay. However, Stark was found to have liquid halcyon in his possession as well, and he could not explain that. Oh. And for those of you who don't know, halcyon typically causes extreme drowsiness, dizziness, feeling of lightness, coordination problems, and larger doses can lead to extreme memory impairment and confused states, just like Julie was displaying at the time. I just, I can't imagine that poor girl. Yeah, I would have freaked out as a, as a parent. Yeah. Just, you know. One of your girls comes home in that state. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm definitely talking to my girls a lot mm-hmm. about smoking, drugs, all strangers, yep. all of those things. I'm being as open as I can about everything, the consequences. Scott's always joking. You don't want to end up being a podcast, do you? <laughs> oh, God. When Julie vanished, cops and Julie's parents suspected Stark right away because of what had happened previously. Mm -hmm. Only two days after Julie Stanton's disappearance, her parents confronted Stark directly, telling him they knew he had taken her and begged him to tell them where she was. I just, I I keep saying I can't imagine, but like that's the only, that's the only thing that I can think of to say. I can't imagine what like she went through and mm. then what her parents just horror you know because when i was when she disappeared i was her age mm-hmm. so i couldn't imagine like being kidnapped or taken disappeared and you know obviously gone yeah and now that i'm older and thinking about it again i can't imagine yeah her parents knowing who did it yeah and saying like you you did this give and her back just can't do anything you, about it and you're powerless Stark was a clam. He wasn't saying anything. Mm -hmm. Stark's wife had a lot of interesting things to say and was really forthcoming with police. Good. Peter Stark was late picking her up from work on April 16, 1990, the day that Julie had vanished. When he arrived, his clothes were dirty. Mm. This is when he told her that the catalytic converter had dropped off his car on the highway. He claimed the dirt was from crawling under the car to repair it. Okay. That night when he was getting ready for bed, after an uncharacteristic evening shower, Stark's wife noted long, angry, deep scratches on his back, shoulder, and arm. Again, he used the excuse of getting scratched while under the car repairing the catalytic converter. Yeah, that's bullshit. While unknown to Stark's wife, the car didn't even have a catalytic converter. The next day, Stark washed the clothes he'd been wearing, and claiming he couldn't get them clean, he threw them away. Of course. I'm absolutely, I would be suspicious. Yeah. Of this guy just, yeah. you're, you're if a piece Scott of shit. came home and did a whole bunch of things that he didn't normally do. Yeah, like you dishes? something, yeah, like dishes or <laughs> laundry or. <laughs> What's up? Why Any are you... sort of housework. <laughs> What's going on? Anything other than laying on the couch? Yeah. Well, no, he does more than that. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But yeah, no, I... Yeah, it's very out-of-character behavior. Trying to keep a major crime a secret is a very stressful thing for perpetrators. Their reactions immediately after the crime or as more details of the investigation come out will show stress responses. It's very difficult to hide guilt from the ones who know you best. Mm-hmm. Searchers looking for Julie came up empty-handed, and Peter John Stark was playing the straight-up denial game with police. Well, he doesn't want to go to jail, but... Yep. Mm-hmm. After a few weeks, the search wound down with no sign of Julie Stanton. Police knew Stark wasn't telling them the whole story. His facts and whereabouts changed from interview to interview. Yeah. You can't keep your lies straight. The Stantons knew in their bones that Stark was the guy. Yeah. They were vocal about what they felt to be police inaction around Stark. They felt he was a dangerous predator who they also believed had taken their Julie. Yeah, they had every right to suspect him of that, considering what he'd done. 
After a lot of public pressure from the Stanton family, police set up a task force to investigate Julie's disappearance. There was more to Peter John Stark than met the eye. Stark had a record of violence against women that went back years. I hate men like that. Just keep your hands to yourself. You don't own us. That's right. In the early 70s, an 18-year-old blonde woman was hitchhiking to go meet friends and was picked up by Stark. Mm -hmm. Hitchhiking was no big deal in the 60s and 70s. Lots of people did it. I was personally hitchhiking in Nova Scotia into the 90s. I, I'm absolute terrified safety person. I, I never played hooky. Yeah. I never skipped class. Good God. I never stayed home when I wasn't supposed to. Nerd. Uh, never hitchhiked. I did all of those. Always called, <laughs> always called my mommy for a ride if I needed one. Mm. I, I didn't do that and I got grabbed. Anyway. I just, I, I don't know why I was so terrified mm. of everyone. To the woman he'd picked up, at first Stark seemed pleasant. He called himself Michael. He admonished this woman for hitchhiking alone, telling her it was a dangerous thing to do. Red flag. After driving a short distance, Stark pulled off the road to a more secluded spot. There, he demanded sex from the woman at knife point. When she tried to fight him off, Stark became enraged, stabbing her brutally multiple times in the abdomen, leaving her for dead. Oh, that's awful. According to the TV show CBC's The Detectives, the woman somehow escaped and was taken to the hospital where, hanging by a thread, she received emergency trauma care. Her liver had been slashed, Ouch. her lung was punctured, and the blade had come close to severing her spine. The show also claims that she died three times on the operating table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you get your liver damaged, that's a, that's a serious bleeder. Yep, for sure. After this attack, Stark was initially charged with attempted murder, but as the young woman was too terrified to face her attacker and testify in court, Stark's charges were reduced to assault, and he served only six months in jail for this horrific attack that nearly cost this victim her life. These days, I would feel justified and able to go to court and say, this is the man who did this because there's victim support these sure, days. But yeah. back then, there wasn't. So she was probably absolutely terrified yeah. that he would come again. Yeah. Find her and come again, probably. When police interviewed the woman after Julie Stanton's disappearance, she was still having trouble dealing with what had happened to her 20 years ago. Trauma mm -hmm. lasts for a long time. It lasts forever. It definitely does. Yeah. It's, it's like a ghost that you carry with you. Never goes away. There was another suspicious event that happened around Peter John Stark. From the York Regional Police website, quote, On Tuesday, September 22, 1981, Marie Woods, a 31-year-old woman who resided in Scarborough, was reported missing to the Toronto Police Service after she failed to arrive for work on September 21, 1981. Investigation revealed that Marie Woods was last seen alive on Saturday, September 19, 1981. On September 21, 1981, Marie Woods' vehicle, a blue 1980 Subaru station wagon, was located in the parking lot of the Scarborough Town Centre, 300 Borough Drive in Scarborough. On Monday, November 10, 1986, five years later, a resident of the area of Leslie Street and St. John's Side Road in the town of Newmarket contacted York Regional Police in relation to the finding of human remains in that area. On November 27, 1986, the remains of Marie Woods were identified using dental records. An investigation into the disappearance of Marie Woods was undertaken by York Regional Police, but her killer remains at large. Mm. End quote. Okay. Marie Woods had been dating Peter John Stark around the time of her disappearance. Okay. In this case, too, he claimed he knew nothing about what had happened to her. Of course. All at these women and I didn't do any of it. Nope. Nope. At the time she was found, she was too decomposed to determine how she had died. Okay. There was no evidence linking Peter John Stark to Marie's death, so he simply slithered out of being convicted of a major crime once again. Mm -hmm. This time, he walked completely free, and Marie's death went unsolved. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you know if he was dating her, then he's the one. Yep. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, where there's smoke, there's fire with this guy, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Stark and his wife Allison, Kim's stepmother, were on the outs. Since Julie's disappearance, the relationship had become even rockier. Police, who were watching Stark closely, were aware of this and felt another interview would be in order with Mrs. Stark. Mm -hmm. Her loyalty to her husband had clearly been shaken, so it was the perfect time to chat with her again. Okay. Since Julie Stanton had gone missing, Stark's behavior was bizarre. Allison said he was stressed out all the time. He was paranoid that he was being watched, listened to, and followed. Well, yeah. This was true at times. Yeah. But he'd even began peeing the bed at night. Oh, Guilty conscience. Something. Yeah. When asked about Peter's behavior before Julie disappeared, Allison gave a chilling account of a sexually charged game that she and Stark would play called the Hitchhiker Game. Yeah, I do remember that. Stark would ask Allison to dress up like a sexy but innocent-looking teenager and put on a blonde wig. Mm-hmm. He would drop Allison off on a dark abandoned road, driving around a bit before turning around to pick Allison up, who was then pretending to be a hitchhiker and a stranger to him. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the newspaper rumors sort of thing that came out after high school. Yeah. I remember that specifically. Allison got into the car. He would introduce himself as Michael. Mm-hmm. As the two drove off... He would ask what a nice girl like her was doing out hitchhiking alone at night. Does this sound familiar? Yep. He would ask her if she knew how dangerous that activity was. After driving around for a while, Peter would pull into a secluded spot where he and Allison would have sex. Of course. Again, in the CBC show Detectives, Peter was portrayed as having specific sexual needs, one of which was the need for violence to arouse himself. Okay. Even though Allison was a willing participant in the simulated violent rapes, she did not know about his past. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's just... yeah. Yeesh. You bastard. Allison, it would seem, was a stand-in for at least one victim of a violent sexual assault, the woman from the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Stark was reliving the moment, as some serial predators are known to do, replaying the event over and over with a surrogate victim. The surrogate in this case being his own willing wife. The parallels with the earlier crime right down to the fake name used and how he made the victim dress Mm -hmm. were too exact to be a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's playing out his fantasy and memory of an event over and over again. That turned him on. Yeah, that's just... A violent thing that turned him on. Violence against women. Yeah. Ugh. Allison told the cops that Peter was bothering her to play the hitchhiker game in the days prior to Julie Stanton's disappearance. Mm-hmm. But she'd been unwilling. Oh, so... Stark had even begged his wife to take work off on the day that Julie went missing. She again refused. Oh. When his wife refused to take part in his sick game that day, Stark lost the outlet that he'd been using to let off the building steam of his sick addiction to sadistic sex with unwilling women. Allison, also a victim of Stark's manipulation and depravity, and just another object to him, probably had no idea of her role as sexual pressure valve for this serial predator. Stark acted on his dark obsession, relying on the naivety and trust of his daughter's friend, 14-year-old Julie Stanton. She most likely had no idea what danger she was in when she climbed into the front seat of the monster's car that afternoon. That's just awful on so many levels, and I just... 14 is such a naive... You think you're smart as a whip at 14. You think you know everything. And nobody can get one over on you. Yeah. But you know nothing. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry, 14-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening to this show, you know nothing. Yeah. And it's it's sad. It's really sad because you, you do think you know everything. Yeah. And you do think that nothing can happen to you. But unfortunately, it it does. And it did. Over a year later, 
On Saturday, June 29, 1991, Julie Stanton was still a missing person. The water level was a little low in Lake Gibson, a small canoeing and fishing spot just south of St. Catharines, Ontario, in the Niagara region. A man and his wife were about to put their canoe into water and noticed five concrete blocks in the muck near the shore. Yeah. When the man nudged one of the blocks, it moved to reveal what looked to be a human leg and foot, and it was leaking some kind of fluid. Another pair of fishermen verified the find and police were called and at once arrived on the scene to investigate. Cops cordoned off the area, finding other blocks, including the ones holding another leg, arms, and a head with blonde hair. Yeah, I remember that in the news. The next morning, a human torso was found floating a short distance away in the same lake. Another concrete block was later picked up near there. Mm -hmm. The body was female and had been crudely dismembered, encased in cement blocks, and tossed into the lake. Was it Julie? The blonde hair, age, and stature were close. Had they finally found her? Yeah, I remember. I remember that in the newspapers and on the news. I remember seeing that. Just horrible. Yeah. And just this is the same age as you again. Yeah. You yeah, know? absolutely. Dental records proved the dismembered body was not that of Julie Stanton, but of another girl who'd gone missing that summer. Okay. And her name was Leslie Aaron Mahaffey. Oh. Police informed Debbie Mahaffey, Leslie's mother, of the positive identification of, of her daughter's remains, just days after what would have been Leslie Mahaffey's 15th birthday. What year was this? 1991. Yeah, so they were. she was just a little older. Mm -hmm. I remember that as well. Another young blonde girl who'd gone missing now turned up deceased. Had Julie Stanton met the same fate? Mahaffey closely fit the victim profile that the task force had developed. Initially, Peter John Stark was suspect number one in her murder in the minds of many investigators. Mm -hmm. No one had seen Stark near Mahaffey, and he claimed alibis for the days she'd gone missing, denying he even knew her. Yeah, well, he would. From the book Invisible Darkness by Stephen Williams, quote, Stark said that he'd been at the Colonial Motor Motel in Erie when Leslie Mahaffey was killed. The motel records indicated he had stayed there on May 17th and 18th, 91, not June 17th and 18th, as he'd told them. Their suspicions of Peter John Stark deepened considerably, but they had nothing concrete. Again, the cops were at a dead end. Mm -hmm. When it came to Julie Stanton... Stark maintained that he had not even seen her on the day that she disappeared. However, Stark admitted to his daughter Kim that he'd seen Julie that day and picked her up much earlier than 2 p.m. He was denying any knowledge of Julie's whereabouts after he claimed he dropped her off in Pickering around 1. He claimed he'd never have hurt Julie. He said that he and the 14-year-old were, quote, friends. Can you imagine... That poor girl, Kim, hearing that from her father, mm -hmm. what ran through her mind at that time? Did did my did my dad do this? Yeah, that must have gone through her mind. It had and how to. and how heartbreaking that that would have been. Yeah, the the revelation that did my dad. It's like having do this. The, I wonder if that's... having your fourteen year old carpet pulled out from underneath you, and your world just falls apart. Yeah, because your dad. Nothing's was... ever the same. No. In an interview after some coaxing, Kim came clean and told the police that Peter had, in fact, picked up Julie Stanton that day. This was a break for the cops, albeit a small one. At least it placed him with Julie on the day that she'd vanished, but Kim was balking on testifying against her dad. Yeah, well... I can't imagine trying to compel Bibby or Violet to, to testify against Scott, even if what they had to say was true. Yeah. You know, just it's, like what a horrible thing that yeah, would be. Yeah, it's still your dad. Yeah. It's still your dad. And, yep. uh, you know, she's a, obviously a very strong person with convictions having to go to the police mm -hmm. and admit that to them, that this is what my dad said. It was after these revelations that more investigators were added to the task force looking into Peter John Stark. They started calling it Project Hitchhiker. 
The task force included nine different jurisdictions that saw Stark as a suspect in crimes he'd committed in their areas. Even FBI profilers were brought in to work on the case. Yeah. This part of my research reminded me a lot of the Clifford Olson task force that had been set up 10 years prior to catch the beast of BC. Mm-hmm. It's before computers really. They didn't have VICAP or anything interconnected that they could determine this person had done this here or was suspect here. Mm-hmm. They actually had to get into a room together and have a conversation Yeah. about, okay, here's what he, we think he did where we are. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's what how Olson eventually was caught. Mm-hmm. And Lots of footwork. Yeah. Lots of phone work. Like real old-fashioned real, police work. Yeah, yeah just like in that, uh, that book, The Alienist. Did you ever read that? Uh, no, but I've seen the Netflix show. Oh, I have yeah. the book on my Kindle. I just haven't read it yet. It's, it's a fantastic book. It's it's all about early... Well, you've watched the TV show, so yeah. the Netflix show, it's it's really good. The book is probably much better. The book, and they have a second one too. Um, but uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of legwork. Yeah. Yeah, it's, things are much easier these days. The place where the body of Stark's 1981 girlfriend Marie Woods had initially turned up in 1986 might provide some more clues. As there'd been significant advances in forensic over the past few years, and now investigators had more money, they had a hunch that they might have missed something in the initial investigation there. Mm Mm-hmm. They sent forensic anthropologists to work meticulously, stringing out a grid and sifting carefully through the dirt and debris at the site where Marie Wood's remains had been discovered. Mm-hmm. The search turned up of spent bullet and casing from a Colt forty-five not found in the initial search. Oh, okay, so she was possibly a shot, shot there. Stark, in fact, owned a forty-five Colt pistol that his father had given him in the months before Marie Woods had disappeared. Okay, guilty. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Stark was under a microscope. His phones were tapped, and police began to follow him closely. He'd drive all over willy-nilly, knowing he was being tailed, trying to catch the cops at their game. It was unclear who was the cat and who was the mouse. Mm Mm-hmm. Finally, police pulled Peter over on a fraud charge they'd been holding back. While they were interviewing, while they were interviewing him, the cops bugged his car. He wasn't talking though. For months they listened in and nothing. Yeah. They even bugged his home and his phone. Mm-hmm. For some reason, despite all the warnings police had given her, Allison went back to Peter. Yep, abuse. Yeah, yep. we talked about it, Carol and I talked about it in the last show, mm-hmm. how a woman who's been abused tends to go back Yeah, to this guy because she thinks that's all she's worth. Or Well, I would think as well, like, I'm not worth anything, um, I'm nothing without him, and I'm better off being with him and taking the abuse that he dishes out on the daily rather than having him come for me. Yeah. Wow. And because when he comes for me, that's it. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. That's what women have to deal with. I'd rather have you punch me in the face or the or the stomach rather than you come gunning for me or come at me with a knife because I've left you. Yeah. Allison even quit her job and moved in with Peter Stark again. Even though Allison had confronted Stark, he maintained with her that... He had not even seen Julie that day. So this is all they're getting on their recordings is just him denying. Yeah. The wiretap showed a paranoid, narcissistic man, but nothing concrete to connect him with the disappearance of Julie Stanton. Um, wow. What a piece of shit. Yeah. In a twist, evidence found with Leslie Mahaffey led investigators away from Peter John Stark. That crime would later be attributed to another couple of offenders the infamous Ken and Barbie killers, the husband and wife team of Paul Kenneth Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Yeah, I remember. I remember that in the news. I remember the Scarborough rapist. I remember seeing his picture, the the drawn picture. Have you seen this man? I remember following that as well. It's crazy that these two big cases are going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. And oddly... Paul Bernardo had gone to university classes, economic classes, with Russell Williams, mm-hmm. who was the colonel who later became a serial killer. And Ooh. also, 
off in the gay village, Bruce MacArthur is doing his thing at the same time too. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot happening. There was a lot of horrible stuff happening around Toronto at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess going back to what we were saying before, I guess I didn't really know or think that this horrible thing happening affected me, Mm. but I guess it did. I always stayed safe. I wouldn't even leave the school grounds at lunch. You were such a nerd. No, I just was. I would be. I was. I'd be drinking behind the curling club. No, no, (laughs) nope. And smoking. Nope. Smoking weed, getting into a fight. No, no, I. None of the above. None of the above. (laughs) Wow. I did. I did drink, you know, illegally in later years. Sure. Um, I don't think I tried pot until after high school. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I was always on the safe side. There you go. Yeah. In 1992, cops finally convinced Kim, Stark's daughter, to testify against him. It had to be one of the most difficult decisions that Kim Stark had to make in her entire life at that point, and yes. she probably still thinks about it today. Absolutely. It's a daily thing that would be going uh, through her mind. It's His actions didn't just affect Julie and her family, no. but it affected everybody yeah. that knew him, was married to, born of, just... yeah. Your actions have huge consequences, and these things last forever. I'm very sorry for that. Deep scars. Yes. Police arrested Stark and brought him in intense interrogation, looking into the disappearance and murder of Julie Stanton. Body or not, it was time to go after him. FBI profilers helped to set up the conversation. The idea was to apply as much psychological pressure to Peter Stark as possible to make him talk. Mm Mm-hmm. They had to get into the monster's head. Yeah, well, you know he's guilty, and he's not given up anything, so another tactic has to... Yeah. It's like what the one investigator said, you can't just take him and torture it, torture it out of him, because that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. And he would go free if that was to happen anyway. Yeah, well, he, he would deserve it, but yeah, you can't do it legally. Police purchased the gray Monte Carlo that Stark had been driving on the day of Julie's disappearance. He'd since sold it. Mm, okay. When they brought him in, a female officer of the same build and hair color as Julie Stanton paraded him past that car. He knew it was his. Yep. Yeah. They put evidence up on cork boards everywhere that he had to walk by and yeah. see all the photos and everything. Yep. One officer was listening loudly to tapes of wiretaps between Stark and his wife, Allison, as they walked him through to the interrogation room. Yes, this is very psychological. Yeah, they they're really want to get we to this We know everything. Yeah. And this is what we have, so you might as well just... Give it up. Give it up. They wanted him to see how much they had on him, hoping he would realize how futile his situation was. They did have him dead to rights. They wanted him to confess, but he didn't. He didn't. Yeah. It didn't matter. Cops in the Crown felt that there was now enough evidence to convict Peter John Stark of the first-degree murder of Julianne Stanton. Mm-hmm. He was charged accordingly and held until his trial. Yep. I remember. I remember in the, that. In the Whitby jail. Whitby. Oh. <laughs> Whitterby. Whitterby. <laughs> That's what my parents used to call it. Whitterby. In September of 1994, more than four years after Julie Stanton disappeared, Peter John Stark went on trial for her murder. She had still not been found at that time. Yep. I remember being very, very happy that he was on trial. Yeah. And even though they hadn't found her, that they were taking him to court. He was going to pay for it. Yeah. Stark's own mother, Emily, was compelled to testify early on in the trial. Stark had told her to lie, t- lie to the police for him. She said, I knew he'd picked her up, but I wasn't about to cause him trouble in his marriage. I knew Julie would come back. I told him not to say anything that time so there wouldn't be any problem and everything would be all right in their marriage. Oh, because that's the most important thing. Apparently. Yeah. Mrs. Stark went on to say that she didn't like Julie and wanted her to stay away from the Stark family. Mm. She'd even warned Kim off her. So she probably saw the way her son interacted with Julie and thought that it was her. Right. Right. Because I can imagine the situation. Yeah. Right. Like you can can tell that the mother um, 
could sense that he was attracted to her, but it was her fault. It's the girl's fault. It's always the girl's fault. Men can't do anything wrong, and it is our fault for being attractive. Yeah. Yep. That whole, you shouldn't address that way thing. Yeah. Which is the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. You shouldn't have smiled. Yeah. Don't smile at the creep. Yep. Like, really? Yeah. I'm a creep and people smile at me. I don't do anything. I'm not going to smile at you from now on. Stark told his mother that he dropped Julie off at an Esso station near Pickering Town Center. She said she was going there to meet a friend, although no one in that area had seen her that day. Mm-hmm. And like mentioned before, the last person to see her is this young man who'd seen Julie getting into the Monte Carlo, and he testified uh, at trial. He said he was 80% sure that it was Stark who was driving. Yeah. Mm. He'd made a number of statements to his wife, daughter, and a friend, and to a jailhouse informant about finding Julie's body and that there would be an axe there with his fingerprints on it, that he killed her with an axe. What? Allison's brother testified about Stark's weird comments out of the blue months after Julie disappeared. Stark said he was being framed by police claiming, quote, police would make sure that his teeth marks would be in her ass. That son of a bitch. Jesus. This he'd also said to Kim... Allison and the jailhouse informant. Mm-hmm. So his he said daughter that to had his daughter. Yep, yeah, that police were trying to frame him, and that yeah, they would find his teeth marks in her. Oh, can you? For him just saying that, you know, that's something that he actually did. You could assume that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a, can you? Can you even fathom of your dad saying that to you? My father, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. But having a father like that, I'm so I'm so sorry that 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 man did that. Yeah. To everybody. The jailhouse informant heard even more. Apparently, Stark couldn't hold it in any longer. Yeah. And some of this is kind of graphic. Okay. From court documents, the informant testified that Stark told him when they were in the Whitby jail together in September of 1992 that he killed Julie Stanton. Mm-hmm. He raped Julie Stanton. Quote. I'm going to have a hard time saying this. Yeah. He wanted to fuck her. She wouldn't go for it and started crying. He got scared that she was going to run to her parents, and that's when he chopped her. He chopped her up with an axe. Oh, my God. He was meeting her weekly. Mm. He drugged her with Valium slash diazepam. It's the same thing. Yeah. He wore surgical gloves so there were no fingerprints. Okay. He went to Florida and shouldn't have come back. He wouldn't have been arrested. Mm -hmm. He was asked where the body was and said not to ask him that. Without a body, they couldn't convict him. Uh, Yep. He knew the police were following him. He would take a ride out there. He was playing games with them. Oh, so he was leading them. Almost to her. Yep. On that day, he went to a muffler shop and he got his hair cut. He was changing his clothes that day so he couldn't be placed in one spot or another. There was rust on the door frame or bottom of his car. He got three scratches from her, but the police couldn't prove it because he was in the hospital at the time. And I don't know what that means because yeah, no. I didn't see anything else that corroborates that. Yeah. A lot of what the informant claimed Stark had told him lined up with timelines and other evidence perfectly. Again, from court documents, later... As tape recorded in conversations between the informant and Stark, he said he knew that he had told the informant, I did it. Mm -hmm. He also said, as recorded, that if he got 25 years, he would come out after five years and confess to what he did. What? Are you kidding me? So Serve your time and then say I did it? What a... So he was blathering to this guy in jail, and they'd even gotten him recorded saying these things, so he'd sunk himself, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. His defense team called no witnesses, and Stark himself did not testify. In closing arguments, the defense team claimed that Stark's mismatching timelines were merely errors in time. They admitted Stark was not a good guy, but this did not mean he was a murderer. Mm Mm-hmm. The Crown struck back hard with the evidence, dirty clothes, a prior encounter, 
An eyewitness seeing Julie get in the car, Starks lies about where he was and having others lie to cover him. Taken all together, the evidence pointed to a guilty man unwilling to admit what he had done. Very guilty. After almost 24 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict. They found Stark guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Julianne Stanton, even though most of the evidence in the case was circumstantial and her body had not been found yet. Mm -hmm. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 15 years. Yeah. Unwilling to admit his guilt even after sentencing, Peter John Stark remained quiet on the location of Julie Stanton's remains. Yeah, I remember being so, uh, I think I said it before, just so happy that he was convicted. Yeah. You know, even though they hadn't located her yet, he was guilty, and we had someone who was guilty. Ding dong, the witch is dead kind yeah. of thing. In the last week of June 1996, human bones were found scattered about a forested area outside Manvers Township. A search party of over 800 people had searched the area over the years before, but had somehow missed this place. Oh, that's unfortunate. Dental records prove that the bones did in fact belong to Julie Stanton. Mm -hmm. Julie's mom, Pat, her dad, John, sister, Carrie, and brother, Tony, finally knew where Julie was and what had become of her. That's a whole different type of grief. Right. After that, yeah, you, for years, you don't know where she is, but you know that she's gone. Yeah. And then now, now you know where she is. Now it's a concrete thing. Yeah. And he's in jail. Yeah. But still, it doesn't make it any easier when you find out what had happened to her. Yeah. It doesn't sound like she went peacefully. No. No, it doesn't, but... From the scratches, she fought, so... Right. Good for her, for fighting. A spokesperson for the family said Julie would have been a success at whatever she'd chosen to do, and she might have been a model or actress one day. Mm -hmm. Finally, the family was able to bury their daughter. Yeah. On August 3rd, 1996, Julie Stanton was laid to rest as anthropology students led by Dr. Jerry Melby of the U of T searched diligently for more evidence of the crime where she'd been found near Pontypool. Oh, okay. Still looking. Julie's remains, it turned out, were too badly decomposed to give a conclusive cause of death. Mm -hmm. Stark's lawyers were hard at work now on an appeal of his conviction. Yeah. Now that the body's found, now let's the, see. Yeah. Yeah. Can't prove how she died. No. And that was what, uh, what the argument was. Yeah. Julie would have turned 21 only weeks after she'd been buried. Yeah. In 2000, Stark's appeal for a new trial was denied. Yep. He died in prison in 2016. Yes, he did. You posted that on Facebook. I did, yes. Like right after you heard about it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Saw it on the news. Posted. Bastard. Julie Stanton's tombstone reads, You'll never walk alone again. Your spirit can finally rest knowing we have found you at last. Good night, God bless, we love you. No one has ever been tried for the murder of Marie Woods, mm. the woman from 1981. Yeah. So you had to sort of take that on in a weird personal way, because I know I did with the Clifford Olson stuff. Yeah, well, because it was it was our high school. Yeah. And it was a, it was a good high school. Mm-hmm. And... People had friends. Even even though I was a bit of a loner, I still had friends at the time. Yeah. And I never felt unsafe there. Right. Unwanted, but not... Sure. Yeah, but not that's, unsafe. That, that's the high school experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think. But I, it feels like because it was... Because she was my age and yeah. in my school. Yeah. And had people... Like, I knew people who knew her. Hmm. It kind of... She became mine yeah as well yeah for sure to take with me and to yep. follow yep yeah it's your story yeah yeah when she went missing how did the school administration react there was not the same kind of lockdown that there is now but there yeah. was a heavy heavy police presence for quite a while mm -hmm. at the school around the school 
And there was um, talks about how you have to keep your eyes out for this specific car. Okay. And, and the car was this Monte it, Carlo. It's burned into my memory. Gray Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. Gray Monte Carlo. Yep. You see a gray Monte Carlo, call the police. Look out for gray Monte Carlo. Mm. And they were saying that even before I knew that she had gone missing. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was all about this gray Monte Carlo. When did you find out that she'd gone missing? Was it... Uh... I, I remember sitting in English class. And this was grade nine. And alphabetically, I was the farthest from the door. Mm-hmm. So her friend... I remember her specifically walking into the classroom. She had blonde hair, and it was kind of like a a pixie cut, like salt and pepper type. Yep. And uh, she had cut a pillowcase. She'd cut the arms out and the the neck out, and she was wearing a pillowcase as a dress. Okay. I remember this specifically. Mm -hmm. I remember her coming in, sitting down, and then about two minutes later, she started bawling and crying. Oh, wow. And then the English teacher grabbed her and took her out, and I just sat there wondering what the hell was going on. And so how did you find out what, who told you that? I don't remember. I just, I just knew at one point, like this is a long time ago. So the rumors just started. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. I mean, that day was when the police, you go out the back of the school to catch the bus. And And everybody's talking about it. And everybody's talking about it. And there's police everywhere. Mm. What changed for you? after Julie Stanton went, went missing. Well, I like I said, I didn't really know her too mm-hmm. well, but I did follow the case for a really long time. And I was always a safety kind of girl. Sure. So I didn't really change anything that I did. I would never take a ride from someone who my mother, yeah. you know, didn't say was coming to get me or anything like that. So I... Were your parents more strict? No. No? No. Interesting. Yeah. So you reached out to some of your friends who knew Julie, mm-hmm. and they got back to you. Yeah. Uh, your friend Ella said, Julie sat behind me in science class. While I was bullied a lot by people, Julie would always say hi and chat. I felt peaceful around her. She was rather quiet and more mature than most people in the school. Yeah. That's yeah. That's kind of cool. That's that's a, a cool person. Yeah. Ella was always very, very nice, too. We hung out quite a lot uh, in, like... After that, hmm. I would say, like 10, 11, yep. we hung out quite a bit. She lived close to me, and we would uh, have sleepovers and there you go. stuff like that. Another friend of Joanna's named Amy, who had a few classes with Julie Stanton but didn't know her really well, said Julie was really into fashion. She wore bright red lipstick and acted tough. It was scary that something like that happened to her. Yeah, and Amy saying that triggered the... The memory of, like, the visual memory of me seeing her with mm-hmm. the, the lipstick yeah. and the blonde hair uh, and the, the bomber jacket and the mod jacket. A male classmate of Joanna's gave us a different perspective. His name is Greg. Greg said, The weeks, months, and even years after her disappearance were very frustrating. Everyone knew who was responsible, but it felt like nothing was being done about it. Stark's own daughter had told people that her dad had picked her up that day. Their neighbor saw Julie get into his car. There were some other things, too, that probably aren't appropriate to get into, but suffice to say, everyone knew who was responsible. I think even the police did, they just couldn't prove it. The fact that something like this happened in Pickering was shocking. It was scary for all of us, but I saw the way it changed the girls who we hung out with. They dealt with the same grief that we all felt, but there was an added level of trauma for them, a horrifying fear that it could have been or one day might be them. If there's a point in your early teens, we were all around 14 or 16 at the time, where you lose your innocence, Julie's murder was exactly that for most of us, especially the girls in our group. That's it for this week's story. Thank you for sharing your personal experience with that. Yep, no problem. You have any thoughts that you want to share about this before we... Mm, I'm a little upset at the moment, but... Yeah. I'm glad that we did it. She deserved her story to be told. Yeah, and I think that we did it in a way that was respectful and... and of course, yes. Yes, but, when I asked my friends for their input, uh, I said, you know, it's a very victim-friendly podcast. Yeah. No one makes fun of nope. the victim. Nope. It's always told from, you know, from their side. And that's why I'm glad that you're here, because you could give that perspective of somebody who was affected by it. And yeah. you, you clearly still are because you're you're quite emotional about it at the moment. Yeah. So that's what I want this podcast to be about is is about 
look at what this does to people. Yeah. It's not just, it's not just like a, let's tell a gory story. Yeah, no. This is, this is about, these are real human beings. Yeah. And it was hard to listen to that part. Yeah. Of what he actually did to her. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad he's dead. Well, me too. Yeah. He kind of deserves it. And, and as you said, he's probably burning in hell. Yeah, probably. So before we go, now that we've uh, wiped our tears. And yes, I, I blew my nose. And blew, you blew your nose. Well, yeah, as we were just saying, as we just took a little break, it's, it's closure uh, for me as well, hearing the whole thing. And uh, yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. I'm glad. You wanted me to cover this case. You mentioned it very early on when Dark Poutine first started. Yeah. I'm glad things worked out that you could participate in it. Yeah. That was kind of cool. And I'm glad that I made it to the end without... Cratering. Without my nose running down my face. You did a good job. Oh, thank you. And there's cats in here. The cats in here. All right. So we want to say thank you thank to this you. week's patrons. Uh, so here are our Patreon shout-outs. All right. All right. <laughs> What's happening? The screen is so it's so big, but the font the font is so small. Yeah, I'm blind. Oh. At, at work, I have mine at 135. This week's patrons are mm-hmm. Melanie Hall. Melanie. From Stoughton, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Thank you. Oh, no. They're not from Wisconsin, are Wisconsin. they? Wisconsin. Oh, God. Massachusetts all the way. <laughs> <laughs> I yelled, hello, Wisconsin, when I went through there when I was driving. I, I've said this before. Is there a feud between Wisconsin and Massachusetts? I remember watching some show and yeah, she's like, know. she's not from Massachusetts, is she? Oh, dear. God. Wisconsin girls are the best. Uh, yeah. So I don't think the next person is arguing with Wisconsin because she is from Missouri, which is actually kind of close by. Yeah. And that's Beth Price. Beth. And Price. she's from Aurora. Aurora. Thank you. Thank you. And then there's Adele Noonan, who uh, is a Yumber Yarder. We have seen her there before. And okay. she's from Sherwood Park in Alberta. Is that Alberta? Yeah. I wonder if she's hanging out with uh, Funk and Tron. Funk and Tron. Have you ever seen Fubar, the movie Fubar? Uh, yeah, probably. You have. I don't know. There's been so many. It's like Black Dynamite. You love Black Dynamite. Mm -mm -mm. No, he didn't. Mm -mm. Steph Martin, and she is from Hope, Hope. BC. Hope. Maybe she liked my joke about Hope. What was the joke about Hope? Is this the road to Hope? Is this the road to Hope? (laughs) You know. I don't know. You know. I I thinking that at some point within the next six months I deserve a small vacation sure yeah and you've I worked was, hard I seriously have been considering just going to Hope just I don't really know what's there but it's far enough away that they can't just come and get me have you not ever been to Hope no I've been a mother I've been taking care of my children so tell Mr. Man to stay home with the kids and just bugger off to Hope yeah I think go I will. for a drive yeah, I think I will. Well, we won't tell Violet, but I'm trying to get uh, her BFF that moved away uh-huh. to come down, and I'm going to pick her up in Hope in the summer. Oh, there We're you go. We're going to meet halfway. Where did she move to? Kamloops. One of the... One of the Cams? One of the Ks? Yeah. Kelowna or Kamloops? One of... I can't... <laughs> it's always one of the Ks. I don't know which one, but yeah, I was always thinking, you know, there's like Hope Springs? Sure. There, there was... Hope Springs Eternal? Yeah. Or the, what is oh, the, what's there? So sorry, Steph. But yes, thank you, thank Steph. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kim Litvin. And we don't know where Kim Litvin's from, but oh. a Litvin. Litvin. Hmm. 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 Maybe also from Atlantis. We had somebody from Atlantis last week named Gil. Oh, ooh. okay. But someone with the name Finn. Yeah. But a Litvin. Hmm. So Maybe how would like you a light little... a Finn? Because it's like. Or a little, little Finn. Or could be Little Finn. Or, yeah, or she's like lit. She's like lit. I don't know what that means. That because means stoned, I'm, I think. Mm, We're I, old people. We I don't know really what these, know. these millennials are talking it, it about. It happened. It really happened. I got old. That's and, lit. And when, uh, what, my kid laughed at me. Yeah. Yesterday, I think she's like, uh, I think GG has got to go. And I said, no, that's GTG. And she looked at me. She's like, you don't know. GG is good game, actually. Yeah. 
World of Warcraft. But she looked at me like, Mom, you don't know. Or good going. Yeah. 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 So Kim Litfin is uh, also from Atlantis, I'm going to say. Atlantis. Atlantis. The Atlanteans. And, and she knows, personally <gasps> knows, Dory from Finding Dory. Does she? I think so. Oh, that must be a lovely relationship. It's cute. Yes. Is Kim Litfin a clownfish? She, mm, she could be yeah. hanging out in the sea in enemies. Or it's a lemon shark. A lemon shark. I like lemon sharks. Yeah. That's nice. Lemons. Katrina Ward, and she's from Fort St. John, British Columbia. Fort St. John. Lots of Canadians this week. Yes. And last, Kitty cat. but not least, is Danelda English, and she is from Saskatoon. Saskatoon. I don't know if it's a little bit south of Saskatoon, but it's Saskatoon all the same. Yeah. Saskatoon. So thank you so much for your pledges. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much to our patrons, mm -hmm. past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for one-time support, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Mm. We were dry for donut money this week, but Joanna brought other treats for me. I so. brought Indian treats. Yep, and yep. spicy cardamom tea. Tea. In a in a in a mug that says swear words that I'm not gonna say on the podcast. Yes. One of them begins with C. Oh, and the it C does word. not end with a K. Yes. <laughs> it ends with a T. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. No, we actually drop on Mondays. Oh, you're saying something different. Yes. Never mind. Oh, Mike didn't pick it up. I did pick it up. I was being silly. No, I didn't pick that up. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Join us in our closed Facebook groups, the Umberyard, the Barnyard, and the Craft Barn. The craft Barn. Everybody's having so much fun. Oh, yes. Somebody asked me if uh, I had ever made anything out of a pill bottle. I saw your And reply. I said I made a bong out of a, <laughs> out of a codeine bottle. <laughs> one codeine bottle. Oh, Mike, checkered past. Oh. Um, yes, the craft barn is fantastic. Uh, Mindy contacted mm -hmm. me. Well, she said, can anybody make me this pillow? And I said, I can make that. And yeah. I made it and we met up and I gave it to her and she's happy now. Oh, she's from Vancouver, right? Yeah. Oh, you met her? Yeah, I gave her her pillow. Oh, neat. And now her bum is happy. Or her hips. She's got happy hips. She's got happy hips, so <laughs> there I'm you go. glad. You know, join you, the craft barn. You join, might get happy hips. You might get <laughs> spicy Spicy. Yes, it's it's actually very good. You can post everything that you make, and everybody is super supportive. And the barnyard is always full of animals, animals, people's animals, and sending love because my animal has has passed, and uh, sending love because my animal had. I just surgery. got a new animal. I just got a new animal, and here's my, a funny my animal. animal. Cats are a holes. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> they're in the room. They and are. Exactly. With your tummy that's reaching to the floor as you walk. So come hang out with the rest of us good eggs in there. And before we go, we do have one more little piece of business. And that's a promo from the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. Starring Mike, another Mike, from London, England. Here he is. If you're looking for something different... Murder Mile covers the untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders in London's West End. It's researched using the original police investigation files, it's presented as a dramatisation, and it focuses on the victims' lives in an honest, detailed and sympathetic way. Murder Mile is about life, not lunatics. So if you love true crime stories about real murders by regular people in everyday places, then Murder Mile is just for you. Murder Mile was nominated one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018. So if you love things a little bit different, try Murder Mile.
Thank you so much, Mike. Uh, you can learn more at MurderMileTours.com. You know what? That's it for this week. Until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Mm-hmm. So goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. See you later. Oh, my goodness. I've fallen. Oh, no, I've fallen. Help. And I, and I can't get up. I can't, I've poured myself. We're ageist. <laughs> I can't do any other voice. Oh, you know what? Before we go, I have to say, um, someone posted that my voice was very serene, something like that. And so did you see that post? No. They said that they would like me to um, just record affirmations. And so she ran down a list of things that she would like for me to say. Okay. So I recorded it, and I apparently have a computer voice. And it's great. My kid wants to like do a video of me with my computer voice because please give us a follow-on. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Here's some of the actual audio that uh, Joanna recorded for her friend. You're doing fine, Aaron. Your feelings are valid. You're not letting anyone down. Boundaries are healthy. It's not as bad as you think. Remember, your dogs think you're amazing. And no, no one will notice that your ears are crooked. <laughs> anyway, yeah, good egg, not a bad apple. Bye. Be a good egg, okay, yes. Bye.